have been thinking, which is always a dangerous thing, what is it about January 2nd, and 3rd, 4th, 5th, 6th for that matter, that leaves me feeling as though I have missed my big chance for the year? As though I've let an opportunity slip by, even though for a brief moment I did hold it in my grasp. It feels as though if I failed to do it, think it, plan it, honor it on the 1st of January, then the second is just too late. And the fourth today is beyond hope. That every day is a fresh start somehow doesn't seem to count. It's not the first day of the new year anymore. Well, maybe it's time to declare the observance of New Year's week. The first seven days of the new year are given over, at least in part, to considering and adopting realistic, healthy resolutions, making appropriate changes, carrying on the internal dialogue or argument over what needs to be different this year. One day is not enough time for such reflection and experimentation, nor is a two-day period of December 31st for reviewing the old year and then January 1st for planning for the new. No, I am declaring for myself at least a New Year's week for which I think I would have enough time, enough time to get going on some healthier behaviors, some clearer ways of thinking, some better ways of being in the world. Yeah, I want a Senite. I want a full seven nights with the full seven days attached to them, a full week at the beginning of the year to prepare for and enter into the new. One week of preparation for 51 more weeks of the year. That seems a bit more reasonable. Maybe with seven days to work on it instead of just one, I just might listen to my own New Year's sermon this time and take my own excellent advice. <laughs> this turn of the year is one of several annual opportunities for one more fresh start on the rest of our lives. It is a time for reflection for re-evaluation, recommitment to being the person we want to be. This is not an easy process, which is why there are so many jokes about the futility of New Year's resolutions. If simply saying something made it so, we would all of us be slender and fit and well-read and charming partners and perfect parents and perfect children, but that is not how it works. It takes more than that, something we acknowledge every week when we say together the words of our congregation's covenant, committing ourselves to aiding each other in our moral and religious improvement because God knows we need help. Not as having attained perfection in character, of course, but as seekers, always as seekers after truth and goodness. People do not come to a church because they are looking for something to do. We come to a church because we are looking for a way to be, a way to learn who we are and who we can be as our best authentic selves, a way to explore our highest loves and our deepest values, a way to understand how grandly 
we might rightly learn to dream, a way to discover how to make a healing difference in a world that is too often wounded and bleeding. Does anyone recognize the name Kenan Callahan? I'm always reassured when I repeat materials, when folks don't remember that. He is one of a small army of church consultants running around in our changing cultural environment, and in his book, Effective Church Leadership, he lists the four reasons that people join churches. We are seeking deep, not superficial, community. We want to be cherished, to cherish ourselves, to learn to cherish others as inherently valuable individual persons with different skills, desires, dreams, and preferences. We want to discover sources of sustaining meaning for our lives, the reassurance that our lives do matter, that life is indeed worthwhile. And finally, we want, we need, encouragement in the nurturing of ultimate hope, the conviction that we can make a difference, that there is reason to keep striving, to keep reaching, to keep dreaming, that we really can bring about changes for the better in this world. Psychologist Abraham Maslow commented that a religious life is defined by its efforts to ask and engage age-old spiritual questions. What is the good life? What is a good man? What is a good woman? What is a good society and what is my relation to it? What are my obligations to society? What is best for my children? What is justice? Truth? Virtue? What is my relation to nature, to death, to aging, suffering, illness? How can I live a meaningful life? What is my responsibility to my brother and my sister? Who are my brothers and sisters? What shall I be loyal to? For what must I be ready to die? On this first weekend of the new calendar year, we're going to revisit some work that some of us have done before and look at some of the who am I and what am I really doing here questions, the kinds of questions that do help us to best understand who and how we are and who and how we are capable of being as we seek to take seriously the spiritual, moral, ethical, religious quest for which we have indeed associated ourselves together. If this exercise intrigues or appeals to you, I offer uh, two books, Salvation by Bibliography. I would recommend Wayne Muller's How Then Shall We Live? And second, Sleeping with Bread, Holding On to What Gives You Life, written by Dennis, Sheila, and Matthew Lynn. Wayne Muller is a minister, psychotherapist, and social activist who founded a program called Bread for the Journey way back in the 1980s. How Then Shall We Live is an exploration of the four basic dimensions of the spiritual life, self-awareness and self-identity approached by asking that simple and age-old question, who am I? Motivation and meaning approached by asking, what do I love? The daily practice of our lives, approached by asking, how shall I live 
knowing that I will die. And the obligation placed by faith and by reality upon us to participate fully in life, which Muller summarizes as kindness and approaches by asking, what is my gift to the family of the earth? Who am I is both one of the easiest and one of the hardest of all questions to answer. So take a moment, silently, I'm not going to put anyone on the spot with this one, and answer that question for yourself. When someone asks you, who are you, and they don't just want your name, how do you respond? Just take a moment to think about that. And how many came up with a response? A few hands and a few maybe if you don't ask me about it, which I won't. Now, did you answer the question, who are you? Or did you answer the question, what are you? Did you imagine answering with information about your gender, your partnership or parental status, your work, your hobbies, your ethnic background, your various group affiliations, any of the various labels that describe roles and activities and relationships that make up your life? Okay, that's valid response. Now, if you were asked that question again, but with the provision you could not respond with any of those labels, how would you answer? If you are not parent, spouse, worker, group member, and so forth, those are all what's, not who's. Who are you? What is left? Who is left when all the labels are gone? Who we most essentially are is the most fundamental of religious questions. And I personally agree with those who have said that the question is almost impossible to answer in the shared human world except in relational terms. We need those labels. Who I am in the world is shaped and defined by what I am, by what people I am connected to, by what communities I identify with, by what activities I undertake, and for what purposes, for whose benefit do I undertake them. But is there not a self, something that is not adequately encompassed by those labels, that underlies and connects them all into the one unique manifestation of the human that is each one of us. The spiritual question becomes, do we find our core identity in those roles, many of which can and will be taken from us? or in that harder-to-define underlying self? And if the latter, how do we encounter that self? How do I come to know who I am? What do I love is a question that comes up a lot in economically challenging times that force a refocusing of our attention on issues and values other than the quest for acquisition. The issue is, what ultimately guides my life and gives my life meaning? Muller is a bit of a cynic about the loves of our contemporary society. He writes, what we love galvanizes our attention. It frames our life. It forms the soil in which we grow. It is the seed in the ground. 
We give our heart to what we love. Traditionally, most Native Americans have spoken of their deep love for the earth. They feel her as their mother, the sky as their father. They watch the earth and the sky very carefully because these are things they love. They have many names for the sunlight that strikes the earth, sun that first rises over the mountain, sun that strikes the top of the trees, sun that colors the earth red and orange, sun at twilight that angles through the flowers. Because of their love, they watch carefully. Our own consumer society loves and respects other things. We may have only one name for sunlight, but we have many names for automobiles. Chevrolet Caprice, Ford Mustang, Oldsmobile Cutlass, Pontiac Firebird, Toyota Corolla, Nissan Stanza. We take the time to name what is important to us, what we place at the center. So the question to ask oneself is simply this. What do you place at the center of your life? Not what do you think ought to be at the center, but what really is central. Based not upon your Sunday morning ideals and dreams, but rather upon the hard information available to you in your address book or your contacts list, your appointment book or your online calendar, your checkbook, your phone bills, your charge card statements, all good basic documents of our real life values. What is at the center of your life? And is what you find there what you really want to have there? And if it is not, and especially if it is not, that brings us to that third question, how shall I live knowing that I will die? We humans are, so far as we can tell, the only creatures who have to live our lives with the definite knowledge that our individual lives will end. Most of us prefer not to think much about that. Most of us go along with Woody Allen's comment that I do not want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it through not dying. <laughs> but that is not an option that is open to any of us. Whatever may come beyond this life, and I'm well aware that within this room, the, the hopes, the beliefs, the expectations run the full range of imaginable possibilities. Whatever may come after death, we know for certain only that this life will end. Knowing that, how shall we live the days that are given to us? And there we do have choices. And the most fundamental choice is, shall we live with awareness or shall we live as though asleep? Again, quoting from Muller. As Susan Ertz Riley observes, millions yearn for immortality who don't know what to do with themselves on a rainy Sunday afternoon. Sadly, most of us go about our lives as if we had all the time in the world to waste in unproductive work, joyless relationships, endless worries and plans for some distant future, obsessive goals and demands. Our presumed immortality permits us to be sloppy and imprecise in our actions and words. We can always clean up later. So we are not so careful with what we say and what we choose to do with our precious days on the earth. 
We give hardly any thought to what we hold sacred. We simply wait until the world turns our way before we take the tremendous risk of becoming fully awake and alive. But all this waiting and worrying and sloppiness is nothing more than a form of sleepwalking. Muller then quotes Buddhist monk Thich Nhat Hanh's comment about those who look forward to life after death while ignoring life here and now. There are some people who believe that they will enter the kingdom of God or the pure land after they die. I don't agree with them. I know that you don't have to die in order to get into the kingdom of God. In fact, you have to be alive to do so. The fourth question of the spiritual life is, what is my gift to the family of the earth? Muller assumes, and I know of no great religious or philosophical tradition that would disagree, he assumes that our most appropriate response to the miraculous gift of life is to live it with both gratitude and generosity in the balance of receiving and giving that honors who we are and what we love and how we know in our deepest souls we are able at our best to live. Too many of us are afraid to offer our gifts to one another, afraid we're not good enough, not skilled enough, not creative enough, not smart enough, not strong enough, not you name the quality enough, for our offerings to be valued by others. And this is nonsense. There isn't a human being alive who does not have the capacity to give to the family of the earth. And the most basic of gifts is the gift that grows out of the loving heart, out of kindness. In the words of the Buddha, the founding of temples is meritorious. But greater than all other gifts is loving kindness. As the light of the moon is 16 times greater than the light of all the stars, so is loving kindness 16 times more efficacious in liberating the heart than all other religious accomplishments taken together. If what you offer is given out of the depths of your kindness, your deep awareness of all the world's kinship, that we are all kindred, we are all related, that being the shared root of the words kindred, kinship, kind, kindness, then your gifts are worthy, they are acceptable. And if you do not share them, then you and all the world will be the poorer. So that's a full course of spiritual direction in four easy parts becoming aware of who you are, becoming aware of what you really love, becoming aware of how you wish to live given the inevitable coming of death and the miraculous gift that is each moment of life, and becoming aware that you do have much to offer to the world simply by being aware and from that awareness living in kindness, in kinship with others. The questions are simple and easy to ask, but they are not all that simple to answer. And for most of us, coming to a full answer is the work of a lifetime, and it's never finished. I mentioned the Lynn's book, Sleeping with Bread. 
The Lynns are spiritual directors, therapists, addictions counselors, and one of them, Matt, is a Jesuit priest. Sleeping with bread is a brief, a very brief, introduction to the examen technique of St. Ignatius Loyola, founder of the Jesuit order. His examen, or examination, of conscience and spirit is very simple, and I commend it to you. Each day, at the end of the day, ask yourself two questions. For what today was I most grateful? For what today was I least grateful? The first is the identification of one's consolation. Asking and answering that question repeatedly over time creates an awareness of what, who one is and who one wants to be, of what one truly loves, of how one is in fact living, and of how well one is sharing oneself with the world. The second, the identification of one's desolation, shows us our shadows and our growing places. It invites us to honesty about our inner life and our interactions with others, and it also helps to clarify our most honest and trustworthy responses to those four questions about the spiritual life. The Lynns speak of families who share the examen around the dinner table or at bedtime, even with the youngest children, to help them develop the habit of self-awareness, self-honesty, and spiritual growth. It's a prayer technique widely used in retreats and religious communities. It's a valuable pair of questions for daily journal entries, and it does not require the writing of minor dissertations each day to be of value. Brief notes will do, and patterns emerge, insights develop. What we truly love and long for begins to emerge all through being willing to ask and honestly answer that simple pair of questions. For what today was I most grateful? For what today was I least grateful? And there are endless variations on that examen. If the question of gratitude doesn't seem quite right or if you're afraid you bore easily, consider some other options to add in or replace it. When today was I most loving? When today was I least loving? When today did I receive love? When today did I feel denied love? When today did I feel most alive? When today did I feel drained of life? When today was I happiest? What was the day's high point? When today was I saddest? What was the lowest point of the day? When today did I feel successful? When today did I struggle and feel I had failed? When today did I encounter the holy, the sacred, the presence of God? When today did I feel that God was absent? Don't force answers from or upon yourself. Give yourself the gift of some quiet moments to let the answers arise from within you. Don't judge the answers. Your responses are whatever they are. And accepting them honestly and gently 
will tell you more about yourself as you are and as you want to be than trying to force them into particular attitudes or forms. If you do decide to experiment with the examen with others, hold each other's words with gentleness, with kindness, so you become for one another a gift of loving acceptance, the kind of love that allows the other the freedom to be self-aware and to grow in that awareness. Achieving perfection is not the goal. Living in such a way as to be ongoingly and actively, responsively and responsibly grateful for the gift of life, for its richness, its possibilities, its connections, its joys, that is the life to which we are called with each new year, each new day, each new moment and opportunity, if we will take it, for one more fresh start on living the rest of our lives. Remember the words of Rainier Maria Rilke from his letters to a young poet. I beg you to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves. Don't search for answers to be given you. If given, they would be of no use, for you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. For the present, live in the questions. Then someday in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answers as well. May your new year be blessed. And may we all in our own living be blessings to each other in this new year now begun. As I extinguish the flame of our congregation's chalice, take this flame, each of you, into the chalice of your own heart. Carry its light, its warmth, its dancing beauty out into the world that needs you. Go forth now together and be peace. Blessed be and amen.